Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. So back in 2016, I spent way too many hours dedicated to watching people's periscopes. I'm sure there are (laughs) listeners who don't even know what periscope is because it was so short-lived and Facebook Live launched to wipe them out. I'd bounce from one show to the next and get totally wrapped up in it. One of the channels I discovered was Danielle Diamond. She would teach about yoga on and off the mat, and I loved her vibe. She's been very public on social media about mental illness as it relates to her mom, and I wanted to bring her onto the show to talk about it. So let's welcome Danielle. Hello. Thanks for having me. So happy to have you here. So let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you live, all that good stuff. So I have been a yoga teacher for about 15 years. I've been practicing for about 22. And the funny thing is, I actually found yoga through my other career. I was actually a TV producer. I worked at MTV for 10 years. And I was one of those diehard get up at 5.30, go to Equinox for two hours before I go to work, spin, run, you know, crazy workout people. And Oh God, I I hate to even say how long ago this was, but it's like (laughs) back in 1996, um, literally people were not doing yoga. Like it was like your grandma did yoga. Like literally my grandma did yoga. That was like the only way I knew about yoga. And slowly, you know, there was, there was like one or two studios popping up in the city and it was like the integral yoga or Jiva Mukti, you know, and, and, uh, Cindy Lee's Om Om yoga. Um, but there, there were like just a couple. So I happened to be working on this fitness video and we wanted to add like, you know, a cool new whatever twist to the end of it with another workout. And I was like, well, you know, people are doing this yoga thing. It's kind of lame, but maybe we want to look into it. But it was, you know, compared to spinning and, you know, it was like what we kind of knew as yoga. Again, you picture like old people lying on the floor stretching. Like that's what a lot of people's idea of yoga is. And um, so I went down and found Jiva Mukti on St. Mark's Place in New York. And I was like, oh, this is a cool place. And um, I took one class with Sharon Gannon, who started Jiva Mukti, and I was done. I was like, oh, my God, this is it. To find something that just pushes you to your limit mentally and physically, and you leave just with this blissed out feeling of like, oh, you know, like I want to do this all day, every day, and I want to teach other people how to do it. So long story short, had some kids, didn't want to keep commuting and working 18-hour days. So I was like, okay, well, what else do I love? I love yoga. Let's do yoga. Um, While I was working at MTV, my mother committed suicide. And At first, I was only practicing the physical aspect of it, but once she passed away and I was having a, obviously, you know, I was 21, having a really hard time dealing with her passing and I didn't want to go to therapy or anything and I started meditation. And, you know, you read my bio and I say, like, it it saved my life. I really feel like this practice helped me get over... (laughs) get through because you really don't ever get over your mother killing herself, right? 
but it really helped me see that it wasn't my fault. She had an illness. There was nothing I could have done to stop it, that I could stop feeling guilty about it and all that kind of stuff. So when people say yoga saved my life, I'm right up there with the converted (laughs) of that group. Wow. What a story. You know, it's so funny you bring up MTV and I know that you worked there, but I always think I have a t-shirt hanging in my closet from 1982. (laughs) I was not born yet, but my dad had gotten it for me. And it's one of my favorite t-shirts that I refuse to wear too much because I don't want it to shred. Um, Is it an MTV t-shirt? Oh yeah. It's one of my favorites. Oh, I love it. So about yoga and meditation, it's so interesting that you found this thing that really worked for you and recognized how valuable it was for you on the personal side of things and coping with your mother, but also in teaching people and helping people. And what I've learned through you is how much it is about on and off the mat. And Mm -hmm. it's not just like one hour every day, that's it. It's how you bring that into your lifestyle, which is so huge. Yeah. that you weren't interested in therapy. What's that about? Okay. So it's interesting because I will say I have nothing against therapy now. (laughs) I still haven't really been, but my whole thing was I watched from the age of, from I can remember maybe four or five years old, watching my mother go through this illness and I have always had this stigma because she had this therapist who was horrible. He was a horrible, horrible man. And he's actually done some horrible things, stories that I've heard to other people, like he should not have his license of what he's done. And he basically like made my mother feel like she was an invalid and couldn't do anything. And yes, she was bipolar, but she was totally functioning. Like she was a smart woman. She was creative. She totally could have done something with her life on a daily basis, not even to make money, but just like volunteering or getting out of the house. And he made her feel like the only thing she could do every week was go to see him three times a week, by the way, at how many hundreds of dollars a pop, right? So he had her on every single drug. My dad had worked in the music business and he would send his guys who worked in the factory, like he'd pay them to go drive up to Canada to get Prozac before it was legal here. She was basically like his guinea pig and she couldn't see it. He just like had her in this position where she only believed what he said. Everything he said was gospel. And then one year when I was in high school, she went up to McLean, the hospital up in Boston, as I like to call it, the girl interrupted hospital. Yeah. Where they were. And she got off all her meds, was there for a month, was in therapy with all these other great doctors. She came home and it was like she was a brand new person. She was happy. She was vibrant. She had energy. They had her on like one little tiny dose of something and she was thriving. She started to go back to this doctor. He was like, oh, no, no, no. You're not okay. Don't listen to them. And all of a sudden he had her all drugged up again and she was like a zombie. Wow. Yeah. And so- wild. Right. So to me, doctors are bad. They make you, you know, think that you're crazy and horrible and like you can't live without them and they put you on drugs and they change who you are and they don't want you to be okay because they want to control you. And obviously now I'm older and I realize that's not the case, but as a 16-year-old girl, even- when my parents wanted me to go to therapy to deal with living with my mother's illness when she was alive, I didn't even want to go talk to somebody. So after she died, in my mind, he killed her. Like he made her think that she was so useless that she didn't want to live anymore. So after my mom died, everybody 
in my family thought that I should go to therapy, I guess, which would be the normal <laughs> thing to do if your mother commits suicide when you're, you know, 21. Um, but again, just because of everything that had happened, I just really wasn't into it. So after I was practicing yoga for a little bit, I started to dive into the meditation world and just found that that was really the only thing that helped me get still and kind of quiet the chatter in my mind and the constant repetitive thoughts of what could I have done? It was my fault, you know, feeling guilty and, and all that kind of nonsense that goes on loop in your head when something happens. And instead of talking it out with somebody, I kind of talk through it on my meditation cushion and it really, really helped me. I, I really, when people say meditation or yoga saved my life, I'm absolutely a convert because I really do feel like that process of sitting down every morning and getting still and processing my grief and my sadness and my anger, quite frankly, at her for leaving me, um, the, the meditation really, really helped. That's incredible. And it's incredible that you found it on your own. Mm -hmm. It's not like someone said, this is what you have to do or you've got to go to therapy and being forced into that, you found something that became a lifelong practice and turned into a business for you. So yeah. kudos to you. Thank you. So let's go back a little bit. And I'd love for you to share a little bit on how you came to understand that your mom was struggling with this mental illness. Did she tell you? Did your dad tell you? Did you oh, no, nobody had to tell me. It was quite obvious. You know, it's it's interesting. I was asked to write um, an article about it a, a long time ago, and it, it was literally the first memory you have of your mother's illness. And I wrote this story, and I could remember this day like it was yesterday. Maybe I was four or five years old, and... My mom was in bed, you know, as she was on, on various days, you know, being sad and crying on and off. And my dad had to go to work. And, you know, my dad worked in the music business, but he owned his own company. And he was amazing. Like, he really tried to be around and home as much as he could. But, you know, on the days when my mother was like, okay, he would go to work, obviously. And um, I was like, oh, how, how can I make her happy? You know, like, in my mind, even back then, I always, it was in my mind, what can I do to make her happy? Right. And as many of us know, and it took me a while to figure out, but through my practice, I've learned that you can't make other people happy, whether they have a mental illness or not. Happiness is, it's all on you. You need to choose happiness and you need to do things from the inside to, to make yourself happy or content even. But back then, to me, it was like, how can I make her smile? How can I make her stop crying? So I remember this day I went downstairs and I'm like, oh, I'm going to make her lunch. And I couldn't have been more than, I don't know, how tall are you when you're four? Like a couple feet? <laughs> and I didn't know how to cook, obviously. So the only thing in the house that I could figure out how to make, I made her a carrot and mustard sandwich. And like <laughs> I remember like scooting the chair over to the refrigerator, pulling the bread off the refrigerator and it falling on the floor. Like it's so crazy. I could remember this. And I remember writing in the article saying, I got out the carrot and I knew I had to cut it, but I was too young and I wasn't allowed to use knives. And then I was like, well, no one's paying attention to me. I can do whatever the hell I want. You you know, so I like cut up the carrots with the knife and put mustard on the bread and brought it up to her. And I remember writing in this post and, and I could see her face. It was like, you know, I, I did what my dad did. I took out the tray and I put the sandwich on a nice plate and put a flower on it. And I brought it up like making her room service. And like the smile on her face was of utter 
thankfulness and thoughtfulness, but also of utter despair of like, oh my God, I'm a grown woman and my baby daughter is trying to take care of me. Like, again, I couldn't have been more than four or five, but I remember just feeling so sad for her that like she, even back then, like it just felt like she couldn't take care of herself, you know? Um, so that was like the first time I really remember like, oh, this isn't normal. Like, do mommy's lay in bed all day? Like, isn't she, like, I'm too young to be doing this, you know, taking care of her. And then, you know, as I grew older, it was the ambulances that would show up in the driveway every time she tried to kill herself or visiting her in the hospital after she had tried to kill herself and didn't succeed. And this would happen maybe not every year, but every two years watching my dad try and talk her out of the bathroom when she had clearly swallowed a bottle of pills and locked the door and, you know, him trying to be like, please, honey, open the door. And he would like try and put me in front of the TV and the other room. You don't know exactly what's going on, but you know, something's going on and it's not good, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's like the earliest memories of when I was younger that I really kind of remember knowing again, not exactly what was wrong, but knowing that it wasn't right. You knew that your friends were not coming home to their mothers in bed all day. Yeah, yeah. Because you know what? Maybe not at four, but once I was like five and six and going to other people's houses, yes. And we would come home from preschool and their mom would be baking cookies and playing out in the backyard with us. Like, yeah, I was like, well, why aren't we doing that? And it's always so hard for me to tell these stories because my mother was amazing. Like when she was happy... And when she was in her good periods, she was the best mom. Like she was so supportive and so loving and always made me feel like cared for and all that. But it was always darkened by those other periods of like, oh no, when is this going to happen? You know, what's going to happen next? And I think the hard thing for me was like, I always had this feeling like I remember walking home from school and I'd get to the door and it's almost like I could feel myself pause at the door before I turn the knob and be like, is she going to be in a good mood? Is she going to be in a bad mood? Is she going to be dead when I go upstairs? Like, is she going to have swallowed a bottle of pills and my dad's at work and I'm going to find her? Like it was every day I had that feeling of not knowing. So um, that was disturbing clearly, you know, to have to kind of live live through that. Yeah. So imagine what that was like. Are you an only child? I am an only child. And that did make it a thousand times worse because nobody else understood. You can say like, oh, I know, you know, oh, my mom gets mad at me sometimes or, oh, my mom gets sad sometimes. It's like, yeah, no, it's not really the same, you know? And then after my mom, um, it was like a whole thing. My dad's company went bankrupt because he was trying to do 10 different things at the same time. And then my parents got separated and I left for NYU and I kind of left my mom. I felt like I was abandoning her, you know, because who was going to take care of her? My dad left because he just couldn't deal anymore. His business was gone. He was like about to have a mental breakdown himself. And I felt such immense pressure to stay and like, do I not go to college? Like, what am I supposed to do? Who did you talk through that concept with? Nobody. I didn't talk through it with anybody. And I'm not saying that it was a smart idea because in college I had a lot of issues with like eating issues. And I think I channeled all of that anxiety. Well, not even anxiety. Cause I feel like I, I never, I don't really feel like I dealt with anxiety back then, um, or depression or anything. I, I always joke. I was like, I always felt like I dodged a bullet because I have a lot of 
people in my family who suffer from mental illness. And I always felt like, okay, I'm okay. I think I'm okay. I'm okay still every year. I'd be like, am I okay? Do I have a problem? But I kind of knew that if I didn't go away and separate myself from it, that was going to become my life, like just worrying all the time that something was going to happen or, you know, just dealing with that. And she didn't want me to be home. She wanted me to go away and have a life, but I just felt guilty because I felt like she was going to be all alone. So what happened in that situation? You went to NYU and... I went to college. My parents had to sell their house. It was literally like out of a movie. You know, my dad owned a guitar factory, like rock stars coming over for dinner every night one week. And then the next week, the bank is towing the Ferrari away. It was like, you know, rich people problems, but it was just like such a contrast of like, okay, you're living this life. And then I go to college and think there's money and then there's no money because everything went into paying off the business. And I'm now working for four jobs to put myself through school when I thought, oh, we have all this money, like it's not going to be a problem. But that was one of the very interesting things growing up that nobody really understood. And the more I've been talking about mental illness and just my, just, you know, because I just do feel a responsibility to be an advocate for people um, just because of what I've seen and friends from high school will post on my, and they're like, I never knew that your mom, I never knew you dealt with this because I was really good at hiding it. And people looked from the outside of like, oh, Bon Jovi's eating dinner at your house. Oh, you're going backstage every week to different concerts. Like you're, you have the life, like you're so lucky, but it's the old saying of like, you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. And they really didn't know what went on behind closed doors in my house. That's such an interesting concept that Mm -hmm. I talk about all the time. I always say how people come to me, and I even said this in the intro episode, how people look at my Instagram and think I have this glamorous life of travel and working remotely and going to live music and stuff. But I also struggle with an invisible illness. And my life isn't always glamorous. And people just don't know that because they're not with me 24-7. But if I'm not talking about it all day, people assume everything is fine. And you clearly hid what was going on in your house to make people think that everything was all good and if not all good, glamorous. Right, exactly. Because I didn't want them to think I was weird. I didn't want them to think that like I had a crazy mother. And, you know, I use the word crazy lightly. But that's what people think. So how did you present yourself in college then? What was that like? I went there. It it was almost like I cut an arm off. Like I just left everything behind. I ditched. Well, I didn't ditch. I graduated from high school a year early as a junior because my dad was managing bands and I started traveling with him and I was working before I went to NYU. So when I got there, I just had this complete disconnect. I didn't talk to anybody from high school. It was literally like I wanted nothing to do with that past life. And I just wanted to start over. And it was hard for me because I wasn't that far away. You know, my mom lived in New Jersey. So it wasn't that far, but like I didn't really go home a lot. And um, it worked out. She actually wound up moving in with her sister. They were really close. And because there was like no money, um, she went and lived with her, which was perfect because at least she was with somebody. But I didn't want to go visit. Like I would once in a while, but then I always wound up just feeling horrible because I felt like, I wasn't doing more for her. Again, try because I still felt like, oh, it's my job to make her happy. My dad had taken off. And like, you know, even though I'm still super close with my dad now, like he's a really great guy, but he just couldn't deal with it anymore. Yeah. So, and I don't blame him for it. I mean, it just was a horrible situation, but he just, he said, it's like, 
I felt like I was walking on eggshells 24 hours a day. He said, I would wake up and I would go and make her coffee. And I did, I would bring it up to her in the morning and smile and say good morning. And I never knew if she was going to scream at me for something or if she was going to say thank you. It just, whatever side of the bed she woke up on. And, you know, and I understand because it's like for me, they would fight and she would yell and throw things. And I could go in my room and close the door and blast my music. It was like he had to lay down next to her every night. So it was a lot different. Circling back to what you'd asked me, it's like when I went to college, I was just kind of like, I need to cut the cord and just start fresh. But then I would notice like when I would visit my mom every once in a while, she just seems like very, you know, she was sad. It was just sad. It was, she was living a sad life. Her husband left, her only child went away. And if she wasn't already depressed, it's like, you know, she lost her big house. She lost, you know, being able to go out and do things because we had no money. And her whole life just like went crashing down. And I used to say to her, and I say this a lot to people, like you do not have any idea what people are feeling who have mental illness if you've never suffered from it before. And- I would say to her, like, why can't you just be happy? Like, you know, you're, you're, you're living the, a perfect house. You have a living housekeeper. You don't even have to do anything. Daddy takes you away. Like they, we had a house in the Virgin Islands. Like we would go away 10 times a year. It's like, why can't you just be happy? Like literally I would just be like, what is wrong with you? And that's when she would say, like, you don't understand. Like I'm trying. And I'd be like, nah, you know, you're not trying hard enough. And I would get pissed. Cause I, you look at it and people do, they just say, Why can't you just be happy, right? So the weekend before my mom disappeared for the last time, it was Mother's Day and I was, you know, I was doing pretty good at MTV and I went down and I I wanted to take her out for a nice dinner. So I took her out and we had like the best night ever. We had a great conversation and she was like, looking back, I knew what, now I know what she was doing, but I didn't get it at the time. You know, she was saying goodbye to me and she was just like, I'm so happy. You know, you have your dream job. You have, I had a great boyfriend at the time. She's like, you're set. She's like, you're all set. And I'm so happy that we're at a place now where we're friends and you know how much I love you. And I'm just so glad that you're so happy. That's all I ever wanted. And that was the last time I saw her. We had that dinner. Oh, but the one thing I want to say, she said to me, Somehow we got on the topic of, you know, I guess I was asking her how she was. And she's like, you know, I'm doing good. I'm Every day I'm just trying to be happy. And I remember she said, and I use this as an example a lot when I talk to people about it, because mental illness is something you cannot see. You didn't lose an arm. You don't have cancer. You're not wasting away from your treatments or something, you know. And she would say to me, I feel like I have emotional cancer. I wake up every morning and I feel like I want to die and I just won't die. And when she said that, that was the first time that I really got it, that I got what it was like for her not to want to be here. You know what I mean? Because until then, it was just like, we didn't really talk about her being sick. She just was sick when I was younger, you know? And that was really the first time she said that. And I was like, oh my God, wow. Okay. Now I get it. You're sick, but we just can't see it. Wow. You know, really heavy. Yeah, it was really and and it just a little too late unfortunately that <laughs> I'd never I didn't get to talk to her again after that, but I know that she was leaving and wanted me to know that she loved me, she was happy for me, but she just couldn't stay alive for me. And I think a lot of people, you hear a lot of talk about people saying that it's selfish to commit suicide, and mm-hmm. I think it's the bravest thing ever. I mean, it's like, 
selfish. Like, why should these poor people have to suffer every day for us? It's yeah. it's almost not that I wanted my mother to kill herself, obviously, but it's almost selfish of us to want them to keep suffering when there's nothing they can do. You know, she did shock treatment. She did everything and nothing helped her. So you look at it and you're just like, oh my God, to feel like that every day that you just want to die. Like imagine even waking up once a year and feeling like that. And that's how she lived her life every day. Every day for her entire, or at least until probably in her 20s, until they figured out what was really happening. So when she committed suicide, were there people that you had that were close in your life that you were talking to about this? I mean, not really. You know, that was a thing. Um, I'm really close with my mom's family and they're amazing, but I was at college and My dad had moved to California because that was where like the next job was. And he had started dating this woman before, before my mom died. Ironically, well, not ironically, purposely, I guess. My mother killed herself the night before they were supposed to go to court and get divorced. So it was like a big fuck you to my dad pretty much. Yeah. So my poor father lives with that every day of his life. But, you know, he was dating this woman and I was like, you know, fuck you. You're dating this woman. Like I just like, you know, we didn't, we didn't really get along for like a year. He's actually married to her still. So, and she's lovely and I love her and we're actually very close. But obviously when your mother's still alive and your father's dating somebody and they're not even divorced yet, you don't want to like the person, especially if you're, you know, a 20 year old. Yeah. So no, there really wasn't anybody. Cause again, it's like I was at school and it wasn't something that I felt like anybody else had any kind of situation that they could relate to mine. And and quite frankly, it's a bummer. Like who wants to, you know, sit around and talk about your mother killing herself and how depressed you are. You don't want to be that person. (laughs) When I just started working at MTV, I was still actually still going to college at night because I started working at MTV. They offered me a full-time job. So I I finished NYU at night, but, and it worked too. It was like, I don't want to be the downer girl. Like I want to be the fun person. Um, so I kind of just stuffed it all down. And then instead I like stopped eating and was over exercising and tried to control that situation because, you know, if you don't deal with one thing, obviously it goes into another. So that happened. And then, um, I think I just, for a little bit, I just really tried to ignore it. And then when I really started meditating and getting quiet and thinking about it, that was really when I was ready to face it. It's really incredible. I said it before and I'll say it again how you found this practice and how it's stayed with you for so long and clearly continues to develop. Yep. I sit down at my altar every morning for 20 minutes and at night, if I get to it at night too. And, you know, I always tell people, you don't need an altar. You don't need anything special. You could be sitting on the subway for 10 minutes and close your eyes and get quiet, even with all the noise that's going on around you. So you mentioned several times how mental illness is often misunderstood. What is one thing about mental illness that you wish other people knew? Well, it's interesting because I can only say this now because I did have a little bit of a taste of it. And I would say that you cannot make it go away. You know, like I was saying, like you have no control over making it go away where people just want you to be happy or want you to stop, you know, having anxiety about something and you can't. And obviously, if I had never experienced anxiety or depression or anything, to me, it's just like, you have such a great life. Your life is perfect. Just be happy, right? You can't just turn on and off your happiness like that, you know? And two years ago, my son had a seizure 
at the end of, he was running a race and at the end of the finish line, he came up to me and he was like, I don't feel right. And, you know, long story short, he wound up having a seizure. Thank God it was total just from dehydration and overexertion and he, he's been fine. But after that happened, I was having panic attacks every single day. And I had oh. never had a panic attack in my life even despite everything that I had dealt with, I couldn't drive for three months. Every time I saw my son, I would have a panic attack because I thought he was going to have a seizure. Like I thought he would like, again, it doesn't make much sense mentally, but like in my mind, he was going to fall on the floor and start having a seizure again. So like to be around him, it gave me anxiety. It was horrible. It was the first time that I realized, holy shit, this is what it feels like. I just want to stop having this panic attack and I can't tell myself to just stop. And and I consider myself like a pretty in control person. Like I have my shit together, but yeah. you can't just wish it away. That was my big aha moment for my mother too. You know, it was the first was the emotional cancer comment she made. And then it was, oh my God, like she really didn't have any control over her emotions. Because if I'm feeling like this just for a couple months out of my life and I can't control it and it's just situational, if I had to feel like this every day for the rest of my life, I'd want to die. Yeah. You How know? did you go through that? So a lot of a lot of yoga, a lot of meditation. And I actually went to go see a psychologist because my husband was like, honey, I love you. And I know you're like Miss Natural. He's like, but you're you can't like, you can't drive. You're like, you're not functioning. Like you're every second you think something bad is going to happen. So he's like, I just, I'm begging you just go and talk to somebody. And it was, and this is why people go to therapy because if you get a good therapist, it's actually amazing. So, you know, when I say I didn't go to therapy before I was, I was talking about that. I didn't go for my mom, but I did, you know, I went for a couple sessions with this woman just because, I you know wanted to see if I needed to take something and I really didn't want to again because of the stigma of oh my god look what those drugs did to her they messed her up so I was trying to do everything natural and you know I actually was able to taking magnesium and ashwagandha and all these other like adaptogens I was able to calm my nervous system down enough to really work on it and I finally got to that point where I was okay but the interesting thing that came up was I mean the therapist got it right away after I told, you know, did a brief family history with her, she was like, you know, this is all PTSD from your mother, right? And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm fine. I've dealt with that years ago. And she's like, no, you didn't. You never dealt with it. And you walking home every day thinking that your mother was going to be dead is in direct correlation to you every day thinking your son is going to have a seizure and die. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) like that's, you know. Why do you feel like hearing that? It crushed me, but she was spot on 100%. So it's that whole thing about trauma. And I, again, I had never dealt with it, but that how trauma really lives in your body. So I did some tapping stuff and I, you know, I did a couple more sessions with her and again, went deeper into my meditation. And luckily in a couple months, I was okay. And I haven't, knock on wood, had any panic attacks or anxiety since then. But that was really such a catalyst for me to, again, understand her illness and to, not that I'm pissed at people who say stuff like that to people who have mental illness, but to try and change that stigma of like, no, they can't just turn it off. Like you can't just turn it off. 
you know, whether it's panic attack or anxiety or whatever it is, it's, it's you're literally, your brain is like traumatized. You can't just make it go away. Right. And I think that there's so much work that needs to be done to help people understand it. And, you know, let alone just people who out in the world don't have anybody directly in their family who are suffering, but for people who are being affected by it, by living with somebody who has mental illness and how it really affects your life as well. I volunteer to teach yoga to teens at this mental health organization of teens whose parents have mental illness. Because I know that, God, if I had that when I was younger, it probably would have helped me not feel so alone and so isolated and so traumatized by it. And these girls, they feel that it's like I listen to the things they say of like, nothing's ever good enough. I never feel like I'm doing anything right. You know, uh, I can't make her happy. She's always mad at me. What's wrong with me that she's not happy and all that. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's so sad. So there's so much work that needs to be done to support the people who actually have the mental illness. But I really feel like we're overlooking the people who have to deal with it as well. Oh my God, for sure. That's exactly why we're here having this conversation. I mean, I plan to talk to people who have mental illness and many of people have already volunteered to do that. But I think it is so important to talk to the caregivers and the people who deal with it on a day-to-day basis. And I majorly, majorly commend you for choosing to volunteer and work with people because I'm sure you recognize how valuable that could have been for you Yeah, have made that decision to help you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It starts there. And then it's like, okay, you know, my next mission is like, how am I getting out there and making, well, I'm not going to make any presidential comments here because I don't know your audience. (laughs) 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 But the fact that the mental health budget was cut by hundreds of, I mean, like, we need more money, you dumbass. We don't need to be taking it away, you know? And you look at insurance and it's like they won't pay for medicines or they won't pay for this. But like I know someone whose sister just got her lap band surgery paid for because she eats too much McDonald's. It's like, give me a freaking break, you wow. know? It's like, well, yeah. that sounds really obnoxious. But, you know, it's like we'll put money into things that like have to do with appearance or have to do with, well, that's also health. But you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> things that you can see. It's okay. Let's fix the things that we can see people have problems with, you know, platelet counts or cancer or tumors. But like just because we can't see a big mental illness, you know, bomb inside someone's body doesn't mean that they aren't suffering on a daily basis and don't need help. You know, I'm getting all fired up. (laughs) I hear you, but that's exactly why I started this podcast. Yeah, and I love it. And I commend you and I thank you so much for for doing this because it really is. It's such a tragedy that the way these people are viewed who have mental illness and the fact that that the government just, they just don't want to deal with it. Totally. Yeah, it's a huge problem. You acknowledge how in college and growing up, you were hiding this. You didn't really expose what was going on at home because you wanted to live a semi-normal life as much as you could and not really be the person that was making everyone else depressed based on what was going on at home. So we're having this conversation because I've seen a bunch of your posts on Instagram about what you dealt with, what your mother dealt with. And when people commit suicide, celebrities, et cetera, you write about it. Right. What made you all of a sudden start talking about it? I think because 
as I started going through the mental health system behind the scenes, volunteering and seeing how there's such a lack of services and care. And again, just knowledge and information out there about the people that are suffering, that it just really made me feel like, you know what? This isn't pretty. It's uncomfortable to talk about, but we we have to start having this conversation more. And it's something that I can really get behind. You know, there's so much going on in the world right now with racism and and sexism is and, and all these different things. And if I could like get involved in every single cause and help people, I would, but you can't. How much can you do on a daily basis, right? And for right. me, it's so important for me to pick one thing and really focus on it and be able to see change, whether it's, you know, again, doing this podcast or going somewhere physically and literally seeing how I'm affecting people and and helping these girls and how they're benefiting from yoga and talking about their struggles with their parents and stuff, or whether it's, again, how I'm looking into getting more involved, uh, you know, in a bigger way of how can we change these policies. I just felt like, okay, there's enough of sitting by the sidelines and kind of doing my community service behind the scenes. Like we need more people talking about it. And because I have a personal connection to it, it speaks to me and it just fires me up to want to help create change. Absolutely. Do you think that there are other people who are doing a good job at sharing about this topic? You know what? It's interesting. I kind of like have been in my own little lane right now in terms of like what I'm sharing and what I'm doing. And sometimes I I have this thing, whether it was like being a teacher or whatever, that if I start watching too many other things, I get influenced. So I kind of, I actually haven't really been going out there a lot, you know, looking at other things. I know Project You're Okay, I love um, on Instagram. They're a great organization that are hooked up with the Children's Mental Health Project. And I'm looking into trying to do some volunteer work with them. Um, you know, the suicide prevention organization. There's so many different things, but I really focus my efforts, at least I have up until now, like I said, on that local level, because sometimes it can be so frustrating to try and do these big grand things and get involved with big organizations. And then you don't really see the effect of what you're doing. Like for me to go and teach a group of 10 girls and see one-on-one how I'm helping them get through their struggle, that to me is like, oh my God. Like, you know, you see the impact immediately. Exactly. Exactly. And you know what? Listen, again, that's not to say that's all I want to do, but up until recently, that's that's what I have been doing. But now I, I just realize that, you know, there needs to be more and I need to get involved more. That's amazing. So do you have any advice for people with parents who are battling mental illness? The advice that I would give, <laughs> ironically, after everything that I've said, is please go talk to somebody and talk to somebody who makes you feel good about um, where you're at. Like if you go and talk to somebody one time and you get a therapist who isn't helpful or isn't making you feel better about your situation, don't give up on it. Go and try somebody else. It's like a yoga class. If you only go to one yoga class and have a crappy teacher and decide that yoga sucks, it's like you're doing yourself such a disservice, you know? But to go and talk to somebody and 
let them tell you like, you know, it's not your fault. It's nothing you're doing is, is making this person unhappy. Nothing you do can make this person happy. It's not up to you, you know? And I think there's so much that's put upon, especially children with parents who have mental illness or a spouse that you have to make this other person happy. And if they're crying or they're trying to kill themselves or they're upset, it's your fault. And it's not. It's not because happiness doesn't come from other people or external circumstances. You have to cultivate your own happiness. And unfortunately, when you're suffering from a mental illness, that is a freaking uphill battle that is just a constant climb. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's a huge lesson to learn about therapy. And unfortunately, there is an, a stigma still attached to it. I just started going to therapy a few months ago and I had said to myself, okay, if I like this person, great. If I don't, don't make that be the answer that I don't therapy. And it's so important to keep shopping around. Even when people hire me as a business coach, I always say, go ahead, talk to other people. I can even refer you to people who I think are great and see who feels like the right fit because you just have no idea. Exactly. And I think a big thing also to your point, and I'm, I'm sort of giving you answers, but you've said it and made it very clear is finding a practice like yoga and meditation Mm -hmm. that clearly has been so valuable for you and certainly can't harm anybody no matter what you're going through. Right. Or running, you know, it could be running. It could be going a soul cycle once a week or a couple, you know, or or extra, whatever it is, getting your body moving and getting that energy out. And whether again, if it's anger or sadness or loneliness or abandonment or whatever the issues of of someone else's mental illness that's affecting you, or if you're suffering yourself, it's like there, there's definitely tons of research that we don't need to get into about the effects of just getting your body moving and the endorphins and, and, you know, finding something that makes you happy to kind of get yourself out of your head. Absolutely. How do you talk to your sons about this topic? My sons are now 15 and 17. And up until recently, you know, they knew my mom died. We didn't really get into a a whole like long conversation about what my life was like growing up or anything like that. And they don't know everything to the extent of, of what went on. But I do talk to them a lot about like your feelings and if you're sad or if you're angry or if you're this, like we need to talk about it. Like my older son, we just moved. Um, you know, we moved down to the beach. We had lived in a community for 16, 17 years and it was the only place my kids knew. And just because of our life circumstances, we moved down to the beach and my younger son had a a really easy transition. My older son is having a much harder time. Like he's hasn't, it's been harder for him to make friends. We moved him here as a junior and, you know, kids have their clicks and stuff. And I've been finding him like on the weekends sitting in his room, watching YouTube videos half the day. And I'm just like, this isn't okay. You need to get out. And we've had really great conversations just about how he's feeling. Cause I know the signs to look for of like, someone being depressed and and don't think for one second that it's not on my mind that, oh, like it skipped me, but it could go to them. That's always been a fear of mine. He's so lucky. They are so lucky to have you. Oh, thank you. Truly. You're you're an amazing influence, I'm sure, on them. Thank you. um, I would love for you to tell people how they can follow you and learn more about you and your motivating posts about mental illness, learn more about your yoga, where you're teaching, how they can learn from you, etc. 
Oh, thanks so much. Um, well, my website is zenstrength.com. So it's X-E-N and then the word strength.com. And if you go over there, you can get a free um, 30-minute yoga with weights video. And I have some other meditation things and other fun stuff that you could sign up and get for free. You can follow me on Instagram at zenstrength. And then I also have a private Facebook community on Facebook called Zen Strength Community. And I post about living your yoga in there. I actually, I actually have been as consistent lately because we were moving and stuff, but I'm getting back in there. I did a live little video, uh, live yoga practice in there today so they can come and, and hang out in there. And, um, and if you live at the Jersey Shore, you can follow me on Instagram and see where I'm teaching. And I would love to meet you in person. Come take a class with me. Amazing. Thank you so much, Danielle. This was amazing. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and be so raw and honest about what you've gone through and how you're coping with it now. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.